Hi guys, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivory. I'm your host. Today we've got a visit to the British Museum to talk about the Ark before Noah. So back in 2009, a visitor at the British Museum approached a curator named Irving Finkel and presented him with a fascinating artifact. It was a 4,000-year-old Babylonian cuneiform tablet that apparently told of a flood and of an ark. Now, as a lot of people might know, the story in Genesis about the story of the flood is not the only flood story that was ever told. Stories like this preceded the one in Genesis by about a thousand years. What was different about the flood story that was on this tablet was that it seemed to offer mysterious details about the ark itself. And these were details that Irving Finkel had himself never come across before. Here is Irving Finkel's official title at the British Museum. Assistant Keeper of Ancient Mesopotamian Script, Languages, and Cultures. So a discovery like this tablet was exactly up his alley. He spent the next several years turning the tablet over and over, and I mean both literally and figuratively. He was trying to decode its message and to figure out the connection between that text and the story that would appear in the Hebrew Bible some 1,000 years later. The result of those efforts is Finkel's book. It's called The Ark Before Noah, Decoding the Story of the Flood. We sent reporter Hugh Levinson to the British Museum to talk to Irving Finkel about what sorts of conclusions he drew and how exactly he arrived at them. Here's the story. The British Museum is a place of treasures. From the Lewis Chessmen to the Elgin Marbles to, oh yes, the Rosetta Stone. It's also a place where treasures arrive. Hello, hi, nice, nice to meet you. you. So okay. Come with me, we've got upstairs. Okay. One man who knows a treasure when he sees one is Dr Irving Finkel. Instantly recognisable with his extravagant white beard, which would put Santa Claus to shame, he thrusts a name badge in my hand. A badge with someone else's name on it, but Irving Finkel isn't too interested in rules. He's interested in something else. Oh, we're now entering the Middle East department. This is the bit behind the scenes. It's a bit drab. We wind our way through a series of highly secure doors into the offices where the museum's experts live. Dr Finkel's is a darkish room packed with Assyrian dictionaries and the like, plus a view of, well, a wall. It's here that for decades he's practised his love, deciphering cuneiform the script carved into clay tablets in ancient Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. It's a writing system used for thousands of years, and the British Museum has over 130,000 cuneiform clay tablets. He informs me, with characteristic forthrightness, that it's the most interesting thing to study in the world. And then he tells me a story about what happened one day here in the British Museum. Well, the story is, it seems in a way, quite romantic because it came in one day when I was on duty in the arched room, which is where there's a desk where visitors who come in with inquiries come and sit down opposite you and say, what is this? Can you translate that? And this sort of thing. And on this particular occasion, this fellow, Douglas Simmons, came in with a small cluster of small antiquities, which included this tablet, which looks for all the world like a normal letter a business letter of, of about 1800 BC, turned out to be a piece of literature and, in fact, turned out very quickly to be part of the story of the Babylonian flood, which was an electrifying thing because 
already since 1872, it had been well known that there was this Babylonian flood story, which was very similar to the one in the book of Genesis. And I read the first four lines immediately because any fool who'd ever done any cuneiform would immediately read those lines because it's like saying to be or not to be or some such cliche. It's a Babylonian equivalent. It's equivalent. I mean, everybody would read the first two words and the rest of it would come to their head. So I said to this Douglas, well, this is rather interesting. It's a new piece of the flood story, a fine piece of literature, you know, how lucky you are and everything. And he said, good, fine, and what's this? And then slid the next thing across the table and, and off he went with the tablet and I, I couldn't do anything. And, and he um, walked off with it? He walked off with it. It was his. And his dad had got the stuff a long time before, some time after the war. He he was pottering around in the Middle East, reluctant to go home, I think. And he was a big curio kind of hunting person. And he got this stuff. He picked, I don't know where he got this from, except this object was really something else. And off it went. And I didn't actually get my hands on it properly for quite a long time. It was several years before I actually really got my hands on it. And I did it by encountering... Douglas in, in the museum and collaring him in a polite sort of way, saying, you remember that tablet you brought in, think you could bring it in again, sort of thing. And he said, yes, he'd bring it in, and he left it with me. So in this room, at this desk, I had this tablet myself. This, I meant to show you when you came in, this is not it, this is a replica. Wow. But this replica is really, really brilliant, because we have a genius replica maker in the museum, and he did this for me. So just to so, describe it, it's about the size of a mobile phone. phone. Yeah, it is a mobile phone. So similar actually, shape and, and made of clay and broken. Yeah. And, so you can and, see here, you've got you've got altogether sixty lines. There's about thirty on the front. Then you turn it over north to south. It's not like a book, but you turn it this way. So there's a bit of writing here, and then a bit of writing all the way down to the bottom. So every bit of it is covered with a total of sixty lines, and you can see here. So at the front. It's not so bad, even though it's a bit cramped. The back is a bit of a nightmare because you can see up the middle of the tablet there's damage in many areas. It's quite badly broken. Quite badly broken. It's cracked. The surface is lost. There's a whole piece gouged out here and there's a whole piece in this edge missing. So it's one of those famous texts that you translate into English that goes, and he dot, 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 and then they dot, dot, dot. It's that sort of thing. So... You managed to get hold of it. You managed to persuade Douglas Simmons to leave you with the original, of which we got the exact replica here. What does this tiny piece of clay, what does it say that's new? Because, as you say, we, we know that the Babylonians, the Book of Gilgamesh famously, but other examples, yeah. that they had a story of the flood, of the one man who rescues the animals. And, exactly. And, and it's a long-known thing. And so, but, I mean, obviously, if you get another new piece that no-one's read before, that's quite interesting anyway, just in case. But it turns out that it really has a lot of new stuff. Because in the famous story of the Ark in the Gilgamesh version, which is a thousand years or so later than this tablet, there's not much information about the actual Ark, how to build it and all that kind of stuff. But in this tablet, it tells you the shape of it, how big it is, and the materials that will be needed. And all that was new because the primary point about it was that it, the boat, the Ark was to be round. The instruction is very expressed that it was to be a round boat. and A circular boat. A circular boat. And that's something that one doesn't have in the back of one's mind as the prototype for Noah because the, the actual ark in the book of Genesis is an oblong craft, sort of coffin proportions. And, and then there's the toy 
Mother's Ark that everybody has in their nursery, or used to have in their nursery, which is a totally different shape altogether. And no, no one would ever visualise it really as a round ark, as far as I can see. And I certainly hadn't done, and that was a kind of a shock, until I realised that what it meant was a round boat such as they really had in Babylonia, which is this, what we call a coracle in English, which is a guffer in Arabic. And the Babylonians had these guffers in the time this tablet was written, about 1800 BC. And the dimensions are all given, and the dimensions are really rather stunning because in English terms, the surface area of, the, of this round, giant coracle is about half the size of an English football pitch, which is quite a big area. Then it tells you about the rope and the bitumen, and all the measurements make sense in proportion. If you had something of that height, it all kind of fits. It's because you go into great detail in your book and how to build one, you talk to mm. builders about the practicality of it. But just this moment when suddenly this... I mean, utterly bizarre idea, really, to anyone previously, of, of a circular, a mm. round arc, a coracle arc. Mm. That must have been just very strange to come across. It, well, but it, it is there, it is explicit. It, yes, it has the word kippatu, which means circle. And when I read this, I thought to myself, I'm just going to make sure kippatu doesn't have another meaning, you know. But there isn't. There's only one word for circle. And that was it. And so I, I was floundering around thinking that this is really bizarre until I suddenly realised in Babylonian terms it made a lot of sense because they were characteristically used to, to transport livestock across the river because there were no bridges. And sometimes people, but also goats and sheep from one side or another with a long pole. And it's, it's just the most natural thing in the world that the poet would think if it's going to be a boat and it's going to be big, what's it going to be like? Because the coracle as a craft, is not likely to sink. It's very buoyant. And it didn't also have to travel in a specific direction. It doesn't matter where it goes, does it? It's not going anywhere. It wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, our conception of the, the normal Noah's Ark in the nursery looks like a boat that goes from one port to another. It's got a prow and a stern, you know, and you, you think of it all instinctively as going on it. But all that had to do was to bob around like a, an just apple in a bowl of water. Just float. Until the waters went down again. There's a very memorable passage, um, for me anyway, in your book, where you talk about, I think, on the other side, on the very broken side, mm. about finding two syllables and a word. And you say you you pretty much literally fell off your chair that when you was, found out what it meant. Yeah, I mean, people talk about falling off their chair, but this literally has happened to me because it's this area here. Mm -hmm. It's on the back. It's about two-thirds two of the way down. So the first inch of the writing from the left edge inwards, the first inch is okay, and then there's a whacking great hole. So you've only got this. We will never recover this. This has gone forever. So there's a little bit here and a little bit there. So you try and put it together. But there's a line that talks about the wild animals. And in the beginning of the next line, there were two syllables that I couldn't read and couldn't read and couldn't read. And eventually, wiggling under the light, I thought, maybe this one is a sha, maybe this one is a na. And I couldn't think of anything, so I got down this sheen volume of this same dictionary... Look up this is the, the Assyrian dictionary that takes up a whole yeah. shelf of your Exactly, room. but there are three for the letter Sheen, Sh. So I looked up Shana, and there it said two by two. And I, I hadn't even, for a minute, even anticipated, I hadn't thought about it. I just looked up to see what words began with Shana, and there was this two by two, which is like Shanaim in Hebrew and Ithnain in Arabic. It's the same basic number two, but the form, and the verbial form, means... In division, so distributively, two by two. So it was like an unbelievable shock. It is remarkable because it pole vaults you into a fresh appraisal 
of this thorny matter about what is the relationship between this very old Babylonian story with all its detail and the Hebrew story. Which is exactly what I wanted to ask you about. We know that the Jews were taken from Jerusalem as as slaves by Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken to Babylon. What was the means of transmission? I mean, presumably it happened there that these ancient Babylonian stories come into the Bible, that it goes from Gilgamesh to Noah. How are they connected? They obviously are connected, but how are they connected? Well, I think they are connected in the following crucial way, that when you read the narrative in the Gilgamesh epic, which is the famous one from Nineveh, which George Smith found in 1872, when you compare that narrative with the one in Hebrew, the overpowering message, as far as I'm concerned, is that they are related from a literary standpoint. That is to say, one is literally dependent on the other, as regards the wording. I mean, you have the in this Gilgamesh thing, the three birds being released when the waters were going down until the third one didn't come back, and then they knew they were trees, which you have in the Babylonian version and you have in the Hebrew version. And other things as well show to me a very strong literary relationship between the Hebrew text and the Babylonian text, and the Babylonian text are up to a thousand years older than the Bible, however you date the Bible in the form that we know it. And And what would be the means of transmission, how and when and where would that have happened? I try to approach the whole background to this in terms of what's happened to the Jews subsequently, which is somebody coming and destroying their world and forcing them to go somewhere else, and therefore looking at the Judeans as refugees as opposed to the heroes of the Bible, but just as refugees, the phenomena that they're exposed to as refugees, they're transplanted from a small, somewhat backwater kind of place in Jerusalem to Manhattan, which is what Babylon was. High-rises, full of millionaires, full of whores. I mean, you know, it was like Manhattan. So this is already a bewildering situation. Then I found this marvellous quotation in the book of Daniel, which I hadn't thought about since I was a boy, where it says, Nebuchadnezzar got his major domo to pick out a hand-picked group of intelligent Judeans and teach them the law and language of the Babylonians, it says, in Aramaic, teach them the law and language of the Babylonians. And I was in the middle of a public lecture, literally, this is, all sorts of things like this have happened to me, but I was actually in the middle of a major public lecture downstairs in our lecture theatre when I suddenly realised that what that must mean is cuneiform writing because they wanted them to become Babylonians. They wanted to Babyloniise them. So then I think to myself, Jesus Christ... If you have this statement that the cream of Judean intelligence is taught in the palace by the best teachers in the, in the country, cuneiform writing and language, these texts were on school tablets which were used for curricular purposes in the reign of Nebuchadnezzar to teach students. So if you're prepared to believe when it says in the book of Daniel, we know immediately how they knew the flood story. Because they had to copy it out. In class, yeah. They learnt it in class. They learnt it in class. It then became part of their literary resource. It's like a set text. Like a set text. So, I mean, as a result of looking at this, this tablet, I mean, you come up with some very interesting theories about the significance of the creation of the Bible Mm. by the Jews who were in Babylon, who'd been in captivity, who'd been taken there. Can you tell me about that, about how that explains to you the significance of the creation of the Bible to the Jews? Well, because I think that was the spur, that existence when they were bereft and refugees and penniless. This is the moment 
when their identity was most under threat and where an explanation needed to be provided. And that, I think, was the, the kind of stimulus that led whoever it was, and I don't know whoever it was or exactly when it happened, but it led to the creation of this great mass of writing which shows for these people how indeed it is that they ended up in this mess. So, as I see it, you have these people in every way exceptionally vulnerable. And what we know is they created a religion which is now among, as it were, what Tom Lehrer would call the top three religions, you know. That's an interesting paradox, because all the Babylonian religion, all the Egyptian religion, all that stuff has been dead forever. And this thing is still like it was, alive. So it can only be, it can only be because the Bible was generated. It can only be that when they became the people of the book, you had a really important thing arrive in the world, because you have a nation whose existence is defined in terms of a written corpus, or what we would call scripture. In the scripture, in the inherited book, there's a list of everybody's names, who their fathers and grandfathers and grandfathers were. That list, people read it out in religious environment, in the synagogue, they sometimes read out the so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, which is part of the Bible. And it's wonderful that it survives, but what that really is, in my opinion, is a very straightforward telephone book. Because you're the Judeans and everybody looks the same and you have three beautiful daughters, you know what's going to happen every five minutes. Some schmuck down the road is going to be after the hand of one of your daughters. So the first thing you need to do, you ask him what the name of his tribe is, what the name of his grandfather is. If it's not in the book, you know he's not one of the people. That is there in order to define who we are. It's not there as a piece of typewriting practice that is why it's there and when you start to look at the bible like that it's incredibly revealing because the whole of it is for this function now now we're talking about these extraordinary tablets these pieces of clay that have survived thousands of years from the area we now call iraq iraq is again a war zone and it's been obviously very troubled but again but right now, it, it's in the midst of conflict. Mm. Uh, I mean, how concerned are you? Because presumably there must be tens, hundreds of thousands of these tablets still in the ground, still to be found. Well, the ones which are deeply buried, we don't have to worry about because they take a lot of effort digging them up. I mean, I think monuments which are above the ground are facing disaster, very probably. I started to think about it. But the only comforting thing is that the culture of ancient Iraq... All the towns and cities were literate, all of them, and there must have been millions of tablets written. And what we have at the moment is the tip of the... It's not really an iceberg, it's not a good analogy with clay, but the tip of the iceberg, and most of the stuff is still in the ground. So I think you you see this piece of stuff on the desk in front of you. This kind of witness will be around to reflect human history far longer than anything in the British Library, because they'll all fall to bits and far longer than anything on a computer far longer you can be quite sure that in 200 years time there won't be anything retrievable from all the busy stuff that people do on their PCs and laptops now nothing will survive whatsoever nothing whereas these the ones in the ground will be there in 10,000 years time and hopefully the ones in the British Museum as well they're just indestructibly wonderful and wonderfully indestructible one last thing you mentioned that there's this possibility of uh, a movie, a film. 
Oh, it's more than a possibility. Oh, it's, it's happening. Yes, sir. It's much ha- more than that. What happened was, when I first discovered this, there was a thing in the Guardian newspaper about it one Christmas, and it was taken up. And lots of film companies wrote to me, nine or ten probably, saying, we've got to do a film, we've got to do a documentary, you know, and all that. And most of them were religious organisations of one kind or another, all quite crazy. And then a film company in London, a guy called Dan Chambers came to see me, and he had this idea that we could do a film about the truth, you know, and we, could, and we got on very well. And to cut a long story short, he got a lot of funding together in order to build the Ark, as described in this tablet. That a round ark. A round ark, according to this. And what happened was that I sent my translation, as it was, to Tom, who was the, the, in charge of it all, and I think he nearly fainted when he when he read it. What they did is they put all the information about the specs, so to speak, they did some computer structures to see what would happen, and they discovered that with the materials, which are wood and rope, read rope from pith and bitumen with the materials an arc full size which was the size as i said half for a football pitch it wouldn't sustain itself it would be impossible to build it that way so they decided what they would do is they would uh, build it in proportion as large as they could in exactly the way described using the materials as described as large as was as it were at all feasible and they've done it and so it's built. It's built. It's been built in India. And the whole story of that will be as part of this documentary film. The climax of it will be to see what happens when this boat, when it's launched on the river. So they, on, on the lakes, they, they built it in India. And it's about, it's sli- I think it's slightly over a third of the original. So it's a pretty big thing. It's a pretty big thing. And all that will come to light in this marvellous film, which is supposed to be broadcast in England in October. And it will eventually be shown in America too, I think, next year. Evan Finkel, thank you very, very much. It's a great pleasure to talk. It's a great pleasure for me as well. Thank you very much. That was Hugh Levinson. Hugh Levinson is a reporter and producer based in London. Irving Finkel's book is called The Ark Before Noah, Decoding the Story of the Flood. It's out now from Doubleday. We'd love to hear what you thought of our podcast today. Please go ahead, send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com or post a comment on our page on the site, tabletmag.com or on Facebook. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Special thanks today to Barry Weiss. We thank you listeners as ever for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.